am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the Sermon on the Mount. Our text is Matthew 5, 33 through 48. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. We've seen what Matthew means by fulfilling the law. The focus of that phrase is not on obeying the stipulations of the law. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus fulfills the law because he is the one the law points to. He is the goal of the law and the end of the law. He is the one the prophets speak about. He fulfills the law because he is the Davidic Messiah. He is the promised seed to Abraham. He is the prophet like Moses. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is Jesus, Yahweh saves. As the Davidic king and prophet like Moses, Jesus' fulfillment of the old covenant brings that covenant to an end. Jesus has now come up on this mountain to declare a new covenant that governs the relationship between the Davidic king and the citizens of his kingdom. It is a heavenly kingdom. In this new covenant, Jesus declares a new law, a new set of commandments for his kingdom people to follow. The commandments of the new covenant are in continuity with the commandments of the old covenant. Still, these are not civil commandments intended to provide civil order for a geopolitical nation like Israel. Jesus is doing something different. He is not at this time inaugurating that kind of kingdom on earth. This is a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. For this kingdom, Jesus communicates a higher standard of moral expectation that goes well beyond civil or ritual law. This is what it really looks like to be righteous. This is what Jesus expects when he calls his followers to be salt and light in the world. These commandments go deeper into the heart and further out than the written requirements of civil law. The standard Jesus sets is incredibly high. These commandments are not meant to comprehensively address all areas of moral life. These commandments are representative, focusing especially on the relationships among people in a human society. What does it look like for citizens of a heavenly kingdom to be sought and light among fellow citizens of the earthly kingdom? Jesus gives us only six commandments. He uses a similar pattern for all six. First, he introduces an existing commandment with this formula. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. Then he gives us a new commandment that is an augmented or intensified version of the existing law. But I say to you, do not hate in your heart. And then he helps us understand the expectations of his newly formed commandment by giving us examples of application. We addressed three commandments in our last lesson. All three of these begin with a reference to a clear commandment in the Mosaic Code. The first two were from the Ten Commandments, do not murder and do not commit adultery. The third referenced a law in Deuteronomy 24.1 that allowed a husband to divorce a wife who has committed an indecency. Jesus did not overturn any of these three Old Covenant laws. Rather, he augmented the stated form of the law by requiring a deeper heart obedience to the law, or to the spirit or intention of the law. For not murdering, 
Jesus requires that we do not hate. That goes into the heart. For not committing adultery, Jesus requires that we do not lust. This is not a legalistic system where righteousness is only a matter of keeping the letter of the law. That's why Jesus began by saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It is not enough to keep to the outward behaviors, no matter how high you set the standard on those outward behaviors. It is required that the internal expressions of your heart, your thoughts, the visions you play out in your mind, your inner will must also be in harmony with the values of heaven. We also notice that the first three commands focus on what we are not to do. Do not hate. Do not lust. Do not divorce. Well, that's only one side of the moral continuum, and it's not the most important side. God calls us to be active, to be sought in light, to do good. We turn our back on sin and we press ahead towards righteousness. The next three commandments addressed by Jesus are going to challenge us to positive behaviors. Not only does Jesus take us deeper in, he also takes us further out beyond the limits of the written code. We'll take these next three examples one at a time, starting with the fourth commandment in the series. This is Matthew 5, 33-38. Do not make false vows, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. Again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statements be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Jesus started with the now familiar formula, again, you have heard the ancients were told, you know, or it was written. You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. This is not a direct quote of a specific law in the Old Testament. When Jesus says, you have heard that the ancients were told, he's talking about the way the religious teachers explain the Old Covenant commands that have to do with vows or oaths. This teaching is connected to the third commandment, do not take God's name in vain. Numbers 30 and Deuteronomy 23 add, when you make a vow to the Lord, keep it. Jesus then adjusts the law to give us his commandment. His commandment comes in two parts, both before and after the part of the pattern where he develops the commandment. So it's not all at once in this example. First, we get the familiar pattern at the beginning of verse 34, but I say to you, make no oath at all. Later, we get the second half of the commandment, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond these is evil. So we can put those together, but I say to you, make no oath at all, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Childhood wisdom in all kinds of cultures recognizes the needs for oaths and the problem of whether or not you should trust an oath made by one of your peers. You have to swear. Okay, I swear, says the kid with fingers crossed behind his back, which everybody knows invalidates the oath. But if an oath can be discounted by the sly crossing of fingers, we need a system to counter that move. A pinky swear or spit or 
shake on it or swear on your mama's grave. So the kid swears on his mama's grave with the astute knowledge that his mama is not dead so that the oath carries no weight. In the adult world, we do the same thing. You know, we learn to read the fine print because when we sign up for a new mobile phone plan, there might be something in there that's going to get us. We get a lawyer to help read over our business contracts. We know that the language that everybody says is supposed to be for our own good can be there just to create loopholes to let people out of their commitments. This is how I take Jesus' command here. This is what I think he's talking about. It is an exhortation to simple, honest truthfulness. Just stop. Just stop with your games. Stop trying to default each other to get one over on somebody else. Stop trying to get out of your promises. Stop. Let's just don't make any oaths at all. Let your yes be yes or your no, no beyond these is evil. And Jesus is not saying that any oath you ever give is evil. He's saying the giving of an oath with the intention to get around it or get out of it or to have fine print, that's what's evil. This command is also not about taking oaths required to work for the government or to testify in a court. Oaths are not evil in themselves. This command is about the use of the oath as a way to guarantee your own commitment to do what you said you would do. And you don't need an oath for that. Just do what you said you would do. You know, whether you have to take an oath or not, the issue here is truthfulness. Your heart intention should be to state yourself clearly and keep to what you say, period. Jesus develops his command in verses 34 to 36 using the language of first century Jewish oaths. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. It's important to pick up on the problem Jesus is confronting. The Old Covenant required oaths. That's why we know oaths can't be automatically evil. And Paul will later swear by God's name, and he'll call God as a witness. So we're going to miss something if we simply conclude that making any oath is evil. That's not the primary point. It helps to understand the context Jesus is speaking to. Jewish religious leaders like the scribes and Pharisees had developed an elaborate system of oaths. Jesus is addressing how this intricate Jewish legal system was then being used or manipulated. Much of this law was communicated orally, but that law was later written down in a collection known as the Mishnah, and it gives us some insight into what was going on. A whole section of the Mishnah is dedicated to oath-giving, It explains when an oath could be considered as binding and when an oath might not be binding. D.A. Carson gives this example from the Mishnah. One rabbi says that if you swear by Jerusalem, you are not bound by your vow. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, then you are bound by your vow. So it's it's just the preposition. And that's, that's the fine print that's letting me get out. It's whether I say by Jerusalem or toward Jerusalem. Carson comments, the swearing of oaths thus degenerates into terrible rules, which lets you know when you can get away with lying and deception and when you can't. These oaths no longer foster truthfulness, but weaken the cause of truth and promote deceit. Being skilled in 
oath-taking becomes a way to lie. It provides a system a person very good at following rules can use to legally trick people. It becomes a game, a serious game by which a deceitful person could maintain the label, the veneer of righteousness, while practicing dishonesty and harming his fellow citizens. Jesus challenges this twisting of language. To swear by anything is in reality to swear by God, if you are one of his citizens. If you swear by heaven, you swear by God. If you swear by earth, you swear by God. If you swear by Jerusalem, you swear by God. There is no hierarchy of what we swear by. You know, my mama's grave or all the money I have in the bank. It doesn't matter what you swear by. If you swear, if you swear you're putting yourself before God. And notice that this is all kingdom language here. Throne, footstool, king. You belong to a kingdom. God is the king of that kingdom. God is the king of all the parts of that kingdom. If you are a citizen of that kingdom, it is on you to be sincere and honest. You don't get to take the rules of your society and say, well, that's what the law says. I said, no, if your intention was to manipulate, it doesn't matter to God that you did it legally. If you're deceitful legally before God, you're deceitful. And what really control do you have over anything? If you swear by your own head, you swear by God because God is in control of your head, not you. Any promise you make is an oath before God as your witness, and you don't have to say out loud, God is my witness, because that should be understood if you are a citizen of heaven. Every time you make a promise, that's the unspoken truth you live by. Before God, I will do everything in my power to do what I said I will do. My yes means yes. My no means no. Jesus declared earlier in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Is your goal to be pure in heart? Salt and light is not only about avoiding the sin of deceit. Salt and light is about positive action, keeping promises, doing what you say you will do, being a sincere and honest person. Let's move on to the fifth commandment, Matthew 5, 38 to 41, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. The formula starts. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that's directly out of the Mosaic law. It's quoted in Exodus, it's quoted in Leviticus, it's quoted in Deuteronomy. It's standard. And we need to understand what it means. So for example, what's the punishment in Old Testament law if I smash you in the head with a rock? I don't kill you, but I've I've gotten you pretty good. What should be done to me? I hit you with a rock or I take a stick and poke out your eye, what punishment does the Old Testament law give for this personal injury I've caused to you? Any guesses? No, it's not that I should be smashed in the head with a rock. 
There is no record in Old Testament law of an eye being poked out for poking out an eye or a tooth being knocked out for knocking out a tooth. If somebody throws acid in your face, you do not then throw acid in their face. On the contrary, the personal injury law described in Exodus 21, 18 and 19 requires that if I hit you in the head with a rock and you don't die, I will be required to pay for your time off work, the money you lost, and to pay to provide care for you until you're better. That's the punishment. And so as we study through the details of Mosaic law, we see that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is an idiom. It's not, it's not to be taken literally. It's an idiom that communicates a principle of justice. Contrast will help understand this. Here's an example from the even older code of Hammurabi, paragraph 209. If a freeborn man strikes a freeborn woman and thereby causes her to miscarry her fetus, he will weigh and deliver 10 shekels of silver for her fetus. And if that woman should die, then they shall kill his daughter. What's the punishment under Hammurabi's code? The man's not killed. The man who killed the woman's not killed. His daughter is executed. And that's not eye for an eye. The man who does the killing is not the man who is then killed. The biblical use of the phrase eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth summarizes two concepts. First, that the person who commits the crime is the person who will be punished. We're not going to punish his daughter. We're not going to punish his son. We're not going to punish his wife. We're going to punish him. And the punishment will be in accordance with the injury. So we're going to take into account how much damage has been done, and we're going to punish in a way that fits with that amount of damage. But to punish in accordance with does not mean that the punishment mirrors the injury. What help does it do the injured man that his attacker has his eye put out? That might feel like just retribution, but it, it doesn't help the injured party at all. Mosaic personal injury law requires payment for healing and payment for lost work. There is an exception where eye for eye becomes quite literal in the case of murder. The fair and just punishment does mirror the crime. The person who takes a life loses their life. So Jesus is not saying that eye for eye and tooth for tooth is an evil principle or a bad principle or or a principle we shouldn't use in criminal law. He's not supporting the literal use of it in every case because Old Testament law doesn't support the literal use in every case. That's not what this is about. It's a principle. But Jesus is not even focused here on criminal law. He's saying you should not take this principle of criminal law and apply it to your personal relationships. Jesus is teaching a higher standard of moral law. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. So now we're going to have to think about that. What is Jesus really saying? Do not resist an evil person. That a woman being raped shouldn't resist. A father whose children are in in danger should not take action. If we just take that one phrase and interpret it literally without understanding the intent of Jesus' comment, do not resist an evil person, then we have to just lay there passive when evil is done. Is that what he's telling us to do? Let the evil person do whatever he intends to do. Don't resist the evil person. I want to be careful here because I don't want to tone down the radical nature of Jesus' teaching just because it's It doesn't make practical sense to me or because I don't like it. Whatever the right interpretation here, it is going to be 
the high standard. Jesus keeps lifting the bar higher. It's not going to be easy. It is going to require us to give up some sense of our personal rights. It's going to take away my right for for vengeance. It's going to cause sacrifice on my part. Civil law has the authority to require restitution and to exact punishment. I don't have that right. But is Jesus really telling us not to use self-defense to protect the people we love? To not step in and protect someone who's being harmed? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. And we don't have to guess at what he's saying. He gives us a whole list of examples that explain what he's talking about. And this has to do with our personal rights in relationship with people in society. And he's calling us to go deeper in and further out beyond what we might claim as our personal rights, even even the personal rights given to us by law. We don't necessarily cling to all of that. So this is not about the government using force or the police using force. It's not about criminal action and military action. We're not establishing a law for a geopolitical state. And my contention is that it's also not about violent action being done to you, to a loved one, to a victim in society. You can step in and you would not be violating this law. Jesus is saying you, you don't respond every time an evil person does something to you. And these are the cases that he's talking about. So let's consider the examples. What does Jesus expect from us when he says, do not resist the evil one? Jesus develops his point for us with four different examples in 39 to 42. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Let's consider each of these four examples. So first, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So notice what this is not. This is not someone on top of you pummeling you in the face. A blow or a slap to the right cheek implies something else. And though a slap is a physically abusive action, it's not the same thing as a punch in the nose. A slap is intended to shame the person who is hit and to elicit a response from that person. The very specific emphasis on right cheek seems to support this idea that the slap is intended for shame. An individual in the first century context, it would be assumed that he's slapping with his right hand. To hit a person's right cheek with your right hand requires a backhanded slap. That's how you hit the right cheek. The person so slapped either takes it as an invitation to fight or backs down in shame. So this is not a beatdown. This is a question of honor and shame. Jesus is telling us to resist the impulse to defend our own honor. Reject the attempt at shame. If someone hits you once, you do not have to strike back. If someone spits on you, you do not have to spit back. If someone insults you publicly, you do not have to insult back. There are not only two options here. Fight, you know, respond feels like an option. Be shamed, you know, to go away meek and weak and um, dishonored feels like the other option. 
I'm either greatly shamed in public or I have to fight. I have to respond. I have to protect myself. I have to protect my reputation. Jesus is telling us there is a third option. You can refuse to play the game. You can take control of the anger caused by the slap or the humility caused by the slap. And you can refuse to accept the slight to your dignity because you're a citizen of heaven and you recognize that your dignity does not come from the standards of this human society. Your dignity has everything to do with your relationship with God. That's where your honor comes from. Your honor comes from being sought and light. Your honor comes from the fact that he died for you, that he wants you, that he's called you, that you are his. That's where your honor comes from. And if Jesus can allow a human being to insult him or slap him or spit on him and not respond, you can take an insult or a slap, a slight, and not respond. I believe this deeply, and I'm terrible at it, but I believe it. It's a high standard. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The peacemakers, the one who stands there with dignity and refuses to play the game because they want peace. Peace is more important than my perceived social standing. It is a high moral bar. If this first example speaks to your personal right to dignity, the next example of not resisting an evil person speaks to legal rights. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Jesus is alluding here to an Old Testament law that did not allow a coat given as surety to be kept overnight. And it seems odd to us that a coat would be given as surety. You know, I have four coats hanging up. Sure, take my coat. I don't care. But a poor person in an agricultural society might have only one coat, and that coat might also serve as a blanket. It could be the most expensive possession that the person owned. If so, that coat could be taken to make sure the person pays off a debt they owe, but it would have to be returned at night so that the person would not freeze. Jesus seems to be saying that the goal of peace requires us to give up certain legal rights. It is my right to get my coat back. I don't have to give you my coat, but I might have a higher goal, a higher value. Peacemaking might be more important to me. Uh, Having integrity in this process might be more important to me. Being sought in light is more important to me than the letter of the law. We don't demand the letter of the law because we're striving for a different kind of righteousness. It doesn't mean that we give in to any frivolous suit brought against us. But it does mean that getting what we deserve is also not our top goal. We are willing at times to seem to be taken advantage of in order to be sought in light in our community. Our personal dignity, at least in the way society perceives it, is not our highest value. Our technical legal rights given to us in our society is not our highest value. Our right to be free from oppression is not even our highest value. That's the third example. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. This example refers to the Roman law that allowed a Roman soldier to conscript a person to carry his military equipment for up to one Roman mile. It is legal, but it is an unfair imposition required of a conquered people. Jesus says, rather than resist, 
this legal injustice imposed by the Romans, be willing to serve even when you shouldn't have to, and even to go beyond what's required. Be salt and light to that soldier, even if the law itself is unjust. The final example addresses our right to our own material possessions. Give to him who asks, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. In each of the other cases, someone is demanding of us something they really don't have any right to ask. It's wrong. It's unjust. In this case, it's more of a request than a demand. And in this case, the person doesn't seem to be acting with evil intent. But money is a tricky thing, and we still may feel like this is an imposition, that what right do you have to ask me for my money? So I feel shamed if I don't give, and I feel taken advantage of if I do give. I don't believe Jesus is telling us here to give everyone who asks as much as they ask. There are plenty of people who take advantage of the generous. We're to give with discernment. There's more to this idea. Jesus is addressing the sense that we have of our right to our possessions and to question what is going on in my heart when somebody wants to borrow from me. How do I see them? And how do I see myself? Having assessed the situation, assessing my heart, I might give more than what they ask. I might give less. We might give to those who ask. We might give to those who don't ask. But just as we do not cling to our right for honor, we do not cling to our right for legal protection or cling to our right for freedom from oppression, we don't cling to the right of our own material goods. In the end, they're not really ours. They're ours in a sense that we're responsible for our material possessions. We're responsible for our wealth. We are stewards But everything we have is given to us by God, and we are stewards of all of that for God. Stewards of the possessions he's given us. Stewards of our honor, stewards of our freedom, stewards of our legal advantages. God is king. We are stewards. He sets the agenda based on the values of his kingdom. Being sought in light means that we will not always hold on to our sense of what we deserve, even when other people are acting out of evil motives. D.A. Carson sums up this command as a call to personal sacrifice. In the kingdom of heaven, personal sacrifice displaces personal retaliation. And this is not only the commandment of Jesus, this is going to be the example of Jesus. The way of mercy, blessed are the merciful. The way of the peacemaker, blessed are the peacemakers, is the way of the cross. This is the example of our king. He set aside personal retaliation for the wrongs done to him and took upon himself the way of the cross. The self-sacrificial way of the cross is the kingdom of heaven's standard for righteousness. It is a high bar, and it's raised even higher when Jesus gives us his sixth commandment, the final commandment in the series, Matthew 5, 43-48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect.
you've heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy and hate your neighbor. This is not a quote from the Old Testament. I mean, the second part's not. The first part is. It may be a formulation out of the Old Testament narrative. You know, Israel is commanded as a nation to go to war with the inhabitants of Canaan and drive them out. Israel is commanded to remain separate as a people in order to maintain their faith in Yahweh as the one true God and to maintain the moral vision he has given them in the law of Moses. This part of the story of Israel is not easy to digest, and it might lead someone to the simplication, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. It is how some in Jesus' day interpreted the law. There's a Dead Sea Scroll that quotes an extra biblical text from the Qumran community of Jews that states directly, love the brothers, hate the outsider. But the Mosaic Law never commands us to hate our enemy, especially not in the context of personal relationships. The same chapter of Leviticus that requires us to love our neighbor also makes this requirement in 1934. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And even though the emphasis in the Old Covenant is on holiness through separation, which can feel like rejection, Jesus is defining the moral vision for the New Covenant. And he, in another place, tells the story of the Good Samaritan with the specific intent of broadening the concept of neighbor and narrowing the concept of enemy. In that familiar story, the Samaritan, traditionally despised by faithful Jews, is the good neighbor who goes out of his way to help a Jew, beaten, robbed, and left for dead. Jesus turns his listeners' expectations upside down. The moral of the story is that just as this Samaritan treats the Jew as a neighbor in need, so Jews should treat all people in need as their neighbors. But we might say this story simply redefines enemy and neighbor. You know, the Samaritan is not your real enemy. You know, that's what we're supposed to get. He's your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Well, okay, what about real enemies? What about people who have murder in their hearts towards me? People who see me as a problem, who act against my well-being in their words and their actions? Real enemies. What about them? This is the command Jesus gives. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is not leaving us an out with whom we can love and not love. I remember a pastor I liked describing a counseling session he had with a woman married to a quarrelsome, difficult man. He told the woman, I, I know he's a hard man, but the Bible calls you to love your husband. She responded, I know. But he's not really a husband to me, is he? We live in the same house like a butler and a maid. I can't love him as my husband. Okay, the pastor responded. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors. You live in the same house. Can you love him as your neighbor? No, pastor. There is nothing neighborly about the man. I can't love him as my neighbor. Well, Jesus also told you to love your enemies. The woman paused looked the pastor in the eye and said, that I can do. I can love him as my enemy. Jesus does not leave us an out. Love your neighbor. Love the foreigner. Love your enemy. And by enemy, he means those who are actively involved in persecuting you. Jesus goes on to develop this command in verse 45. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
You know, God does not hold back goodness from those who hate him, ignore him, make jokes about him, redefine him. God gives general gifts of goodness to all people. All people can enjoy the wonder of creation, the fruit of the soil, the gifts of laughter, the cool breeze and brilliant sunset. God gives life and free choices to all kinds of people, not just to those who love him. So in the same way, this this loving our enemy apparently doesn't limit to how we think about them or how we pray for them. We are to give them good gifts, at least a general kind of goodness, the goodness of respect, of kindness, of of assistance, of help, uh, not just to the people who work for our good, but to the people who might be actively working against our good. Jesus developed the command further in verses 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You see what he's saying here. If if you're a, a good, decent person in society, acting on the better part of human nature, you're not really salt and light, are you? There are a lot of good non-believers who do good things. That's not going to show transformation in your life. That's not going to cause people to glorify God. Something about the image of God in all of us moves us to respond with love sometimes. But this love is connected to self-interest. You know, we love those who love us. We're friendly to those who are friendly to us or to whom we feel we have special obligation to members of our family or our tribe or our special group. That's not that special. It's nice. But it's a built-in human response. I mean, not with everybody. You know, it's kind of more or less dependence on the particular human. Jesus is going to die on the cross for people who hate him, who lie about him, who spit on him, who kill him. Jesus died for every skeptic who has ever made fun of him, joked about him, doubted him, criticized him, ignored him, discounted him. Jesus is going to give his own life to pay the price of forgiveness for people who will never love him and who will never receive his gift. And he's telling us to do the same. In his first commandment, Jesus started at the far end of the murder continuum. Do not take life. And he walked us along that continuum. Do not take life with your actions. Do not take life with your words. Do not take life in your heart. But Christianity is not all about not doing. That commandment just got us halfway there. In this last commandment, he's telling us, turn your backs on the corruption of sin, on the urge to hate, to take life. And now he's pointing us to the extreme in the positive direction. In your heart, with your words, with your actions, give life, even give life to your enemy. I wonder what that looks like in our modern political climate. Like, What do you think it looks like to turn the other cheek, to not demand your right, to love your enemy, not just to not say bad things about your enemy. This is, it's not only just resisting all the, all the stuff you want to say. That's resisting the negative. But what about the positive? To actually speak words of life, to actually honor and respect, to actually do acts of love from a heart that loves, even when the other person is your enemy, is contrary to your interests. This is the moral vision Jesus is calling us to. This is salt and light. This is what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. And if you want to enter the kingdom of God, your righteousness has to be greater than the righteousness of a Pharisee. 
You have to go deeper in. You must not hate in your heart. You must not lust in your heart. You must not use the law to deceive. But not only going deeper in your heart, you go further out beyond the restrictions of the written code. You don't limit yourself to your legal rights. You tell the truth because you're a truth teller. Your yes means yes. Your no means no, always. You do not grasp onto your right to honor, your right to legal satisfaction, your right to your possessions. And you love with your heart, with your words, with your actions, the one who persecutes you. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, that's the standard. But that's not all. Just in case we're not clear on the standard Jesus has just set, he tells us just one more thing, just one last thing. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How does that make you feel? Like, what's your emotional response to the standard Jesus has just set for righteousness in his kingdom? You know, no hate in your heart, no lust in your heart, truth-telling, giving up rights, not lashing out, loving your enemy, perfect as God is perfect. How do you stack up? Are you worthy of the kingdom? Do you get in? Can you jump over that bar? Do you meet the standard? How do you feel? Well, I hope you feel poor in spirit. Now, I hope you feel bad when you recognize this standard. I hope you feel that there's no way you'll ever come close to meeting it, that you are not spiritually rich. You are spiritually destitute. I mean, forget loving your neighbor and your enemy. You can't consistently love your wife or your children or your siblings or your friends. But there is good news. There is good news in recognizing that you are poor in spirit because that's not the end. It is just the beginning. When we think we can meet the standard, when we fail to see the true poverty of our spiritual state, we hold on to our religion or we hold on to our spiritual practices self-deceived that our righteousness is actually something we can obtain. This is the problem of the Pharisees. This is a delusion. In reality, we are broken, and we can't even start with God until we see that fact. And now we're finally ready to go back and interpret the Beatitudes to understand how Jesus began this sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But it's not enough to recognize you are poor in spirit. That's the starting point. But you actually have to care that you're sinful, that you lack love, that you're broken. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the morning of contrition. This is the recognition that my personal sin hurts the heart of God. It hurts people. It creates a dividing wall between me and God. My sin is ugly and destructive and selfish, and it makes me mourn. I own it. And I weep. I'm sad. But it's not enough to recognize your poverty of spirit and to mourn. Judas got that far in the end. He regretted his betrayal of Jesus. He tried to give the money back. But when he realized he could not undo the consequences of his sin, he could never make it up. He despaired. And in despair, he killed himself. 
He didn't move on. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's what Peter knew that Judas did not. Peter also denied Jesus. Peter also wept. He mourned. But Peter knew he could come back. Peter was humbled, and he meekly submitted himself to Jesus. This is the step of coming to God with nothing. You have nothing to offer him. It is a humbling reality. You can only ask for mercy and hope for his grace. And when you get to this point, something has happened in your heart. You've recognized that you're poor in spirit, but you don't want to be poor in spirit. You want to be good. You want to love God. You, you want to love your neighbor, even though you can't. This is why you mourn. This is why you've submitted yourself to him. You want to be righteous. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. And having come poor in spirit, meekly, with nothing to offer, knowing you deserve wrath, but have received mercy, that this is the only way you could be included in by mercy, this changes your posture towards all people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And there's something of a process in this one. Having received mercy, you become merciful, and having become merciful, you receive mercy. The eyes of your heart have been opened. You see yourself, and you start to see God in a new light. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You do not first see God because you are pure in heart. You first see God when you're poor in spirit. He has to give you faith, spiritual sight, open the eyes of your heart. But then having begun to see God, having a work in your heart, that work in your heart increases your ability to see God more and more. And you can begin to be that which Jesus has set you free to become. You can begin to speak truth, to put aside your rights, to love even those who hate you. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have to conclude with a now what? If Jesus taught these commandments to show us that we can't live up to the standard of righteousness, then there's no point in even trying to do so, right? Saved by grace, we might as well live in sin. Well, as the Apostle Paul says to the same question, by no means. We are not set free from death to live in death, and anybody who's set free knows that. It makes no sense. I don't want sin. That's destruction. I want life. We have been set free from the impossible standard of righteousness so that we might now freely pursue that very same righteousness. Legalism or righteousness through rule-keeping does not work on two levels. It does not work because we cannot actually meet any valid standard that God would recognize as truly righteous. And it does not work because it creates a wrong perspective on what it means to be truly good. Goodness may start with a law of behavior, you know, some concrete statement of how I should act, but goodness requires following the implication of that law deep into the heart. You know, that's where murder starts, that's where love starts, deep in the heart. And even then, once we've gone deeper to the heart, we're not going to stop with any one concrete application described by the law, but we're going to press further out towards true holiness. The law is a guide, but it doesn't limit our behavior. We go deeper in and further out. And so what we see with the Sermon on the Mount, what I'm convinced of, is that we have to make two passes through the commandments of chapter 5. 
in the first pass, any pretension towards a righteousness we can claim as our own is destroyed. The true standard is not the righteousness of the Pharisee in verse 20. The true standard is the perfect holiness of God in verse 48. This standard of goodness is deeper in and further out than we could ever go. In this first pass, we recognize our poverty of spirit. But in that poverty, we humbly receive the gift of righteousness that God offers. When we come with poverty, we are going to be declared righteous by faith. We are going to be set free from condemnation so that we are then able to make a second pass through these commandments. And we see them in a different light. This is not now a standard we have to live up to. This is a vision we can pursue. We have a new relationship towards righteousness. It's not a standard to live up to. It's a vision to pursue. And we press ahead to become that which Jesus Christ has already declared us to be. I'm trying to make an important distinction. This is how I understand the difference between living up to a standard of righteousness versus pursuing a vision of righteousness. My dad was a high school track coach for 30 plus years. He grew up outside of Boston, but came down south to run track for the University of North Carolina. His race was the 800 meters. Well, though back in his day, it was the 880 yards. He came in first in the 880 at the ACC Conference Championship in 1962. Decades later, one of the best runners he coached also attended the University of North Carolina. He got hold of one of dad's old track photos you know, in his Carolina uniform, and he made it into a poster and he hung it on his wall which, of course, his roommate thought was really odd. You can imagine that normal guys put posters of girls on their wall or movie posters on their wall or maybe an athlete like LeBron or Jordan or Messi or Modric or you know somebody famous, but you don't have a poster of an unknown Carolina runner from the 60s on your wall. I think one of the reasons he had Dad's poster on the wall was to motivate himself to win the ACC tournament, just like Coach Brent had done. Another reason I think he had the poster on the wall was to remind himself of what kind of man he wanted to be. Because my dad really did model what a good man looks like. He really did. He really is one of the best men I have ever known. And that poster on the wall became this kid's vision of what he wanted to strive towards. A vision of what he wanted to be like, what he wanted to accomplish. And so if you put a a picture of Messi on your wall or Jordan on your wall, you don't hate yourself every day because you're not as good as they are, because you haven't met that standard. You know you're far from being as good as they are. They are not there as a standard of judgment. They are there as a vision of what can be. And day by day, you're working towards that vision. You fall down, you get back up, and you keep going. You're not under condemnation. As believers, we don't have Messi or Jordan on the wall, right? We have Jesus on the wall. You know, we fix our eyes on Jesus. He is our vision of what life can be like, of what it means to be a true man of God, a true woman of God. He does set an impossibly high standard. Of course he does. But he has set us free from having to achieve that standard. He is not the standard we have to live up to to be accepted. We're already accepted. He is the vision we pursue. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study on the Sermon on the Mount, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the Pentateuch, 
Isaiah, John, Acts, and Romans.